Welcome to Where'd They Go, a podcast that is intended to aid in the grieving process after the loss of a child. Hi, I'm your host, Cheryl Laxanen, and in 2014, after the loss of my son Christopher at the age of 22, I started to receive strange, supernatural communications immediately upon his transition. I say transition because that is what I believe it is. It's just a step into a new type of existence without our earthly body. I thought I was going crazy, even contemplating that I had schizophrenia. So I immersed myself into books and self-help groups to explore what happens after death. By receiving communication from spirit and conducting my own research and exploration, I now wanna help others through their grief, through your grief. Welcome to the club that I wish you didn't have to be a part of. This show is different from previous shows. The grief from losing a child is life-changing. You think about your child every second of every day for years. Then it becomes every minute of every day. So much that you lose your ability to focus on anything else. Children are dying at the highest rate in 13 years and one of the top two leading causes of death is an overdose. In 2014, there were 47,055 overdose deaths. 2019, 70,630. In 2020, 91,799 overdoses. And those are deaths. 2021, 106,699. These numbers are staggering. 2022, 109,680 overdose deaths. As a parent, you blame yourself and say, what more could I have done? I should have been able to protect my child because being a parent, that is what we are tasked to do. Today, my guests are two beautiful young ladies that are in recovery from their opioid addictions. They are here to share their journey through a life of addiction. By sharing their story, I'm hoping to accomplish two things. Mom, Dad, it was not your fault, and you have no control over this disease. The second is for listeners that are just curious, that when we judge others, we inhibit those whom are struggling to move forward and seek recovery. The stigma of drug addiction has to end, because if we continue to judge, we are only adding fuel to the fire. So let me introduce to you Alex and Mary Jane, who are sharing their story and turning tragedy into advocacy. This is Alex, and this is Mary Jane. And you two girls, you just amaze me. I met you about a month ago, and we sat down, we had some coffee, and you were so raw and so honest with where you've been and where you're going. I thought this podcast would be an amazing platform for you to share your story, help those parents who are grieving, and also give, give, some, in by, um, give some insight to listeners what drug addiction is, what that looks like, um, that it's not a choice, it's a disease, and what you're doing now. And we'll get to that at the end. But Mary Jane, I'll start with you. Um, how did it all start? And I'm, I'm curious myself. Like, 
when I was a senior in high school or even a junior in high school, we drank Little Kings. That was our drug of choice. You know, just let down those barriers. But in today's age, it's so much more the, the what's out there, mind-altering substances, um, and the choice. And I'm, I'm saying choice again. <laughs> How did it all start with you, Mary Jane? So, you know, for me, I kind of consider myself a late bloomer because I didn't start using opiates until I was 21, almost 22. And I was very sheltered growing up. Um, I didn't really drink a lot in high school. I didn't smoke weed. Um, I, you know, I was very sheltered, came from a small community. Um, We didn't really, my friends didn't do drugs. You know, the, the handful of times I did drink, I think back to high school and it was very abnormal from the beginning. I had a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol and I, I wasn't like out binge drinking every weekend, but every time I would drink, even if it was just twice a year, um, it would just be once I took a drink, I couldn't really control what was going to happen next. I couldn't control how much I was going to drink. Um, you know, I was very over emotional, just kind of, I became a different person basically. Um, And so when I, you know, was 22, I was in a relationship with someone who had an opiate problem and um, I didn't know anything about opiates. No one ever really talked to me about them. Um, Never. I mean, I maybe had surgery once or twice and took them, you know, with parental supervision, but um, I just tried it and I had no idea what it was. And I probably within a couple of weeks became mentally and physically addicted. And even I remember the first time that I started having like physical withdrawal. I had no idea what was happening to me. Um, it just, you know, the first time that I did, um, it was Percocet. The first time I did Percocet, um, it was like that warm blanket feeling. I had never felt so at peace um, because most of my life I, I was very anxious. Um, I was so fearful. Um, I had depression, very bad anxiety, and I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I always just felt so uncomfortable in my own skin and I never liked myself. And I just, um, so when I, when I took that, um, were you in an environment with your boyfriend at the time or were you at a party or how's that all start? Just in my apartment. And And he said, here, try this. Yeah. And, you know, I had gone out and I had partied before and I had done things like gone drinking and had cocaine. And I probably like if I would have kept drinking at the rate I was, I for sure alcohol probably would have become, you know, my drug of my drug of choice. And I, um, you know, I think with our society, alcohol is such a social construct. You go out, you drink, it's everywhere. So it's easier to kind of get by as an alcoholic or a problem drinker these days. Um, and so I believe that if I wouldn't have kind of burned my life to the ground with opiates, um, it took four years, um, not long. Um, I probably would still be out there today, anxious, depressed, drinking a lot. Um, so, so let me take you back. After that first pill, when did you take a second pill? Probably the next day. The next day you wanted it or yeah it was it was amazing it was you just made you feel good it made me feel so good um I just wanted to do it all the time it became and I didn't like I said I didn't understand what was happening but it was just I've never felt so calm and at peace and 
just like my brain, it, it's always going, 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 especially as someone who's anxious. And it just kind of, it kind of made my brain shut, shut up. And that was yeah. just amazing. So it was a choice, but then your brain's telling you, it makes you feel normal. Yeah. And I think, Compl- yeah, because mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, I had surgery three weeks ago, right? And after surgery, they prescribe you some opiates, mm-hmm. right? And I have them here, and it's a full bottle because I only took three to cut that brain or the cut the pain. Mm-hmm. But if I had the DNA of addiction, I would have finished probably the whole bottle in two or three days, right? Right. But yeah. it does nothing for me. It doesn't give me that warm and fuzzy. God wraps his arms around you feeling like it does for you girls. Yeah. And I think one of the the things that I try to impress upon people who ask about addiction um, and the feelings behind it is that really it's a me problem. Like it is genetic for sure. I, you know, I know that if you were to scan my brain and your brain, Cheryl, it would look different. You could tell that I am an addict, you know, but I think what people don't understand is like, I look back at my life and I've had issues with, um, with other things. Like, it's almost like I try to get outside of myself. I try to escape from myself because I don't like myself. And so I would read a lot of books. That was probably my first addiction. I would read all the time as a kid to escape or like food, um, you know, things like that. Um, you could do it with anything. And so I think it definitely, there is definitely a genetic component to it. And yeah, I did choose to do that that pill but I also had no idea I thought I was just trying something Mm -hmm. that I had no idea I would get addicted and and then it's like it kind of takes over and it's almost like someone flipped a switch and it's like autopilot and Mm -hmm. I just kind of don't have there's no logic in my thinking anymore it's just like zero to 100 I want to do opiates and I'm gonna do them and I I have no say in it I might not want to do it the next morning I might not want to I might want to be like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. But I literally cannot stop. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what people don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, Alex, you're green. I am, right? I am, yes. How did it start for you? Um, Gosh, Mary Jane said a lot of things I I would agree with. Um, I, one of the similar things is that um, that sort of feeling of I am not... Very young, I didn't feel a part of of society in the way that people would, right? I didn't feel that I belonged in most circumstances I was in. Um, I don't know if I'm talking close to this thing enough, but uh, that being said, you know, you try to, as a kid, I was a kid, so I, I was using opiates at 14 uh, years old. But and who gave it to you? Or how, how? I mean, do you remember? Um, yeah, it was a... It was a if you want to call it a relationship, it mm-hmm. was a relationship. I think it was whatever capacity of understanding a relationship I could have had at that time. At 14. At 14. Um, and he was quite a bit older than I was. But um, what kind of started it, though, I, I and I don't put the, I just kind of want to preface this. Yes, he gave me that for the first time. Um, he didn't start it. And that's just, for me, It it's that, and I think... I think that you, you know, you're nodding your head. And I think Mary Jane would understand this too, is that it was 
he offered it, right? Um, but I was interested far before he offered it, mostly just intrigued because of all the things that Mary Jane described. So I was, um, I was anxious. I was an anxious person. I didn't feel that I was liked. My own friends, my own, my my first friends, I'll never forget. They were two of my my neighbors, and they lived within two houses of ours, same street, and they were my best friends growing up from like. N- eight to, you know, 12, my parents divorced and we moved. Um, I didn't think they liked me whole time. We were friends. I just, in my, in my gut, in my heart, it was like, they don't actually like me. Right. We hung out every day, went to dinner, holidays together. Parents were friends and, but they don't like me. And so it was just kind of this unsettled feeling within myself. Um, and so I saw around me now, a lot of the things was peers for me too. Uh, my parents divorced, I'll make it a little bit quick there, but they divorced. We moved. Um, my mom moved us. We went to Akron. So I was born here. Uh, we lived in Westerville up until their divorce. And then my mom moved us to Akron. Um, and so again, that moving schools even added to that anxiety and those things. I wanted to like fit in. I wanted to make sure, are people going to like me here? Maybe. And I had this idea that I can reinvent myself because I knew I had all these these anxious feelings and these like, I don't fit in feelings. I'm like, well, new opportunity. What the most I can do is I was devastated. I mean, I was devastated that my parents divorced, but, and we're very close today, both of, both of them and myself, but, um, but yeah, so I'm like, okay, I'll reinvent myself. And then I wanted to be like you and like you and like, who you wanted to be I, like I everybody to be like else. Every, yeah. But you. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't even know who I was, you know, and, and no, no blame on myself at that age. We kind of are still figuring it out. But I thought I needed to know. And I thought it was a problem. I didn't. So anyone that gave me that validation um, about myself as a person, um, I gravitated towards. And so that quickly for me became the parties. Uh, I was going to parties with older kids that were and I was. I mean, I was a straight A student in school, even in high school using, I kept great grades until it took over my life, um, which we can get to. And, and like Mary yeah. Jane described, how quickly but, does that happen uh, for me? So I, I smoked, I smoked marijuana at 12 years old, right when they divorced, I moved there it was in within weeks, a neighbor, someone gave it to me and I did it, you know, not, not even a thought, which sounds, sounds bad. It sounds terrible, but it was more so just. I hadn't been educated enough on most of the things. You know, we had a good family, a good background. I I just, I didn't know. And so it sounded, okay, you're doing it. You like it. I'm gonna, I'll try it. Um, did that. And then shortly after that, that same friend group that became alcohol. I never much cared for alcohol. I, I was like throwing up after a drink or two most of the time. And then um, quickly became people were bringing pills because I was going to the older kids parties with these friends and lying about where I was going and Mm -hmm. all those things. And, um, you know, but how hard was it to get pills back then? And they were, what year would that be? Uh, I'm 30. So am I, I guess I would say 2010, 11, 12, uh, seven, eight, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. Um, even earlier, actually, because yeah. I was 14. And then when, what, did it become hard to find the pills? Um, so my story is a little different, I think, than like your average opioid user. I didn't use a like Percocet. I did heroin the first time I did an opiate. Um, 
I was, I literally went from smoking weed and drinking to heroin, which was what the... Smoking heroin or snorting it or... No, shooting heroin. Sh- right away. Right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, again, that guy that I had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, he was nine years older than I was at the time. So, yes, it was illegal. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, my mom was going through some things, you know, single yeah, mom at that right. point, raising three kids and you were trying um, doing to the best she could. And I, I just didn't. Yeah. You were trying to. Ex- I wanted escape. to. Fi- I'm a fixer. You know, I like to mm. I like to I want to be a fixer and still something I work on today. And I, <laughs> I thought that at 14, I should be able to fix her heart for what she was struggling with. And I thought I should be able to. That's a lot of weight on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mary Jane, the pills. You started with the pills, or did I did. You? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I really, um, I used them probably until six months or so before I got sober. And I got sober in August of 2018. Um, and I switched to heroin um, and I snorted it or smoked it because I couldn't find the pills anymore. And they were really expensive. And um, I didn't have any money. Dr- yeah. Drugs are so. From what I understand, you have an addiction to opiates. Mm-hmm. You're doing the pills. You just can't stop because the withdrawal. Yes, mm-hmm. that's the thing too. And you know, I think a really good analogy that I always like to use is like a peanut um, allergy. So if someone has a peanut allergy, they're not going to go and eat a peanut chocolate chip cookie because they know like, oh, that's probably going to kill me or make me very Mm -hmm. sick. But with drugs, um, you know, I know that it's going to, it could kill me. It could hurt me. Um, Now I know that. I actually don't really think that I knew that back then. I think I was pretty delusional that I even had a problem to kind of protect myself. But but I know like like with drugs, like people, addicts know it'll kill them, but then they, they, they still go and use. And it's because there's that mental uh, there's the mental addiction the physical addiction and when you add those two together um they're 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 a bitch i don't know if i can say Mm -hmm. that word on here but can you you can say anything you want (laughs) but yeah they are it it is because it's you feel sick and you feel gross and your brain it's like your body's going on like full alert like and you're like i'm gonna die like i'm actually gonna die if i don't get what you need, My, what to I feel need, better. I am going to die. And yeah. um, so, what do you do? I so mean, anything, let, anything. You steal. Anything. Um, you you do whatever you can to get what you need to get. Mm-hmm. How how prevalent is drug addiction in the schools? It, I mean, girls are thirty. Mm-hmm. You know, how prevalent is at your age? It's it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. I I didn't know looking back and I I didn't know. So today um, I see things on social media of people I went to high school with or junior high school with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was I was the most like at that time, I would say, yeah, it was a big deal. My teachers, people that knew me, people like, oh, like they knew I went and I now was on drugs. And now they knew, you know, I mean, they even reach out today. We've had, you know. Uh, it's a small Springfield township in Akron. It was smaller. And, um, but looking back, I didn't know this then, but there were other people. I thought 
the heroin when that came into play, it was more so the older people that I was like meeting out at these parties and those places. It wasn't at my school, I didn't think. And then years down the line, 15, 20 years down the line, or 15 years down the line now, I know that there was multiple people doing it in the school at the time. I've I've had my friend's siblings have passed away. I've had, you know, um, people that I see posting their recovery things on, on social media. And I'm like, that's amazing. Didn't even know that they ever struggled with that. Um, and then I've talked to some of them and they're like, yeah, I, I used to get high in the bathroom at school. And I'm, you just don't know it until you, hindsight's 2020 and when, when they say i used to get high in the bathroom that's not just smoking weed that's that's anything yeah that's anything yeah okay. oh yeah so, uh, how bad did it get for you for me yeah that's probably the the most the largest topic so you want to go there first because that's probably the <laughs> I'll, I'll do it as brief as i can if that we could helps. probably be here five hours having a conversation yeah yeah, yeah. because i think everybody wants to hear how bad does it have to get until you get help? And what can you do as a parent to help your child? Or what could you have done? I mean, how bad does it get? So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll answer and then Mary Jane can answer. I'm going to keep this part just the facts. Because um, like you said, we could probably all talk like we enjoyed our conversation prior. We could probably all mm. talk for hours. Um, the facts are at 14 I had a needle in my arm um I did not get to to walk the stage graduating high school um but I did somehow graduate I don't I don't know how that happened um I was in jail the day I turned 18 um I was home maybe once a month from age 15 on until um ever really until I decided to get clean and and was able to get clean. Um, I have been to jail more times than I can count on my hands and toes, and I've been to treatment more times than I can count on my hands and toes um, from age age 18 until 25. Um, I did any and everything that you can think of, that person that you see on the street corner. um, If you multiply that by 100, maybe the worst circumstances you've seen, I've I've been there. Um, I've ate out of dumpsters. I've, I've... degraded myself and my body to get what I needed. I've stolen. Um, I've been physically and sexually abused by strangers. Uh, I've had, I've stolen from my parents. Um, I've hurt them emotionally, you know, and, and completely disregarded what my family and I, and I, let me, let me reiterate, I loved my family deeply and I love them deeply. I love them through all of it. I love them so much that because I could not stop, I could not figure out why I couldn't stop. I stayed away because I couldn't bear to see, to to make them witness it all. Um, Every so often I would come around and I would try to, I would either say I'm clean and I don't know if subconsciously I just needed, I needed my mom or I needed my dad. I needed my siblings. Um, you know, but I stayed away for the most part because I didn't want them seeing that. I mean, so bad that I'm shooting up heroin in a McDonald's bathroom with toilet water in the stall, you know, um, so bad that I am, I'm letting myself get abused day in and day out just so that my habit can be accommodated when it was that bad. And I didn't know how to stop. And, and I, I didn't. 
Did it was you? the it was, and, and and I guess with such a young age, okay. And in general, I think I think this has been so many close to people close to us, their stories that that it's just it doesn't matter what age. It's once it has a hold of you, kind of like what Mary Jane was saying, you are just it doesn't become you're on autopilot at that point. It is this is what I need. I don't know anything else. I don't know any other way to be. And the longer I think that I was in addiction, the more the more removed. Right. My whole goal was trying to feel like I was a part of society, right? When I was that that young girl thinking that I wasn't. Well, the the more that I was into my addiction, the further I felt removed from society. And I thought, I'm not even supposed to be, you know, I, I maybe I'm not supposed to do this this life thing. I didn't even grasp, I couldn't grasp the concept of real life because all I knew how to do was make myself feel better right fucking now because that's what I needed, right? That's what I needed. I needed to not feel it. And then the thing is, and I'll leave it with this so that Mary Jane can answer this question too, but, um, you know, the more that, the more that we keep doing that, right? The more that we, we can't figure out how to stop using. So we keep using, we have these consequences. We keep using on top of that. The more that we feel all these terrible feelings and experience these terrible things we use on top of it. It's our only coping mechanism at that point. It's the only thing our brain is at this point wired to know how to do to accommodate. So then in turn, we create more of that same issue every time. And then it just, you know what I mean? That's the cycle. And uh, could anybody have helped you at that time? Or did you have to make the decision? No one could. Did it take an overdose for you to make that decision to get clean or... Um, no one could have helped me. Um, and many tried and I have overdosed more times. There is no, yeah, there's no reason by logic that I should be here. Um, you know, yeah, every, yeah, everyone tried to help me. My parents, were good parents, divorced or not. They loved me. They saw me through countless treatments. They saw me through countless stints in jail. They saw me. My mom My mom found me overdosed on her kitchen floor. Mm-hmm. I mean, blue. You know, I. I my dad, I showed up. To, this is going to be a little bit graphic. I don't know if I should share this. Um, I won't in that way. Okay. I showed up after a, a really terrible incident at my dad's doorstep, you know, and then when he went to go get help and he was going to call police, I left, turned around and left, you know, leaving him. Right. So so everyone wanted to help, but they couldn't. I think but that's so common. Yeah, that's so common. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for allowing us to understand. Yeah. Mary Jane. So I think. <clears throat> oh, my gosh. Excuse me. I think. um Something that I, as I've heard a lot of other addicts share their stories, that everyone's bottom is different. And it's not always external consequences that um, cause someone to kind of decide that they're ready to get sober. Um, And for me, um, it was definitely an emotional bottom. I mean, I did have um, legal consequences. And so, um, after I started using, it was like pretty much, I lived the same day over again, over and over again for like the next four or five years. It was like that movie Groundhog Day, you know, and my world got smaller and smaller and I became so isolated and, um, I didn't really want to be around anybody. I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror. I started stealing, um, 
from like my parents and from friends, from people who tried to help me. And I started living this double life. And my story is a little bit different because I went to when I went to treatment, that was the first time that I ever tried to get sober and it stuck. And I think it's because I I really um, try to never forget how low I felt um, before, you know, and so but I, I was stealing and um, the people that I was stealing from, they didn't know that I was stealing from them for like a good couple years. So I pretty much was living this double life. At the same time, no one really knew I had a problem. Maybe people had an idea, but no one really knew that I had a problem I because I wasn't around anybody. And I really, you know, I kept um, to myself and I don't know what's worse, everybody knowing or nobody knowing, you know, um, and I mean, I was in a relationship with somebody and I do not blame that person at all for anything. I mean, I think, like I said, if I wouldn't have started using drugs, I probably would still be out there or I'd be dead, you know, and I chose to do that. You know, I chose, as we say, like the first time I did, you know, I didn't choose to be an addict, but um, I think that. It was hard because he was the only person that I had and he was also sick dealing with his own thing. And um, we we really um, it was difficult. Um, I, I had no one and I was very also delusional. I didn't understand what was happening to me. I don't think that I ever thought the, the I never like thought, oh, I am an addict. I have a drug problem. You know, I think it was always like if I wanted to stop using, I could, but I don't really have to. Mm-hmm. Why would I stop? Like, I don't have a reason to stop, you know? And so um, in 2018, um, I got and I got caught for stealing and I was facing a few felony charges. Um, and but that wasn't enough to get me sober. I was I was using Xanax. And in my brain, you know, I'm a master um justification type of person like I I was using a lot of Xanax and I was like well I had a prescription for it once like two years ago so you justify it's fine. everything yeah, yeah exactly I'm always lowering the bar for myself um and probably so that I could you know um live with myself and um I know that I every night when I went to bed I really wished I remember just being like damn I hope I don't wake up tomorrow mm-hmm. like I'm too afraid to kill myself but I just don't want to live anymore you know and um it, it got it got it's that dark. It does. Yeah. And um, it's it was it was tough. And so I ended up, though, blacking out. I went to outpatient rehab. My mom was like, we need to get you help. And I went to outpatient rehab, but I was still using. I was still like popping Xanax, like through my in- admission intake. I don't remember that whole week before I got. Don't sober. you have to do urine tests, though? Um, I so I was going to outpatient treatment because my insurance would not cover inpatient treatment. Mm. And so I don't think they did. Um, but I mean, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I just know that I was popping Xanax during the intake interview, like nodding off. And then I was also popping Xanax my first day sitting in group and I overdid it. And that night I drove an hour away and I, I was blacked out and I got arrested. I got an OVI and um, it was just such a wake up call for me, um, waking up the next morning and not, not having any sort of like full picture of the night. And also knowing that I made that decision to get in my car and drive. And I wasn't like, Oh, should I do this? Like, probably not. Like I'm really fucked up. I should not get behind the wheel. There was no sort of, um, like 
logical thinking. Like warning signal. Yeah, it was like I was hypnotized, you know, or like on autopilot. And um, I... Did you ever get to the heroin stage? I did do heroin, but I only snorted it and smoked it. I just never, I probably would, if I would have continued, I probably would have picked up a needle, Um, you know, and that's something that I think in the recovery community, we kind of say yet, like it didn't happen yet. Like I never went to jail, but I would have gone to jail. If I would not have gotten sober, I absolutely would have gone to jail or I would be dead. Um, And I don't know how I didn't die that night when I drove an hour away completely blacked out um i have flashbacks of driving in the middle of the median like in the grass Mm -hmm. and when i drove to court like a couple months later i was looking at like trying to figure out where i kind of pulled off and it was crazy how little like opportunity there was to just pull off in the middle of the road where it wasn't like over like a river or over a bridge or i would have just like hit a a wall you know Mm -hmm. and so like when i woke up the next morning I almost feel like it was like a spiritual awakening in a way. I was just like, I am done. Like, I I don't know what came over me. That was your aha moment. That was my aha moment. I was like, I cannot do this anymore because I'm going to die. I'm going to lose my family. You know, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, well, from what I understand, you can't even find heroin anymore. No, you can't. It's all fentanyl. It is. So that's where it gets really scary. It is. Yeah. And I, I know that I was using fentanyl. Um, for a bit and um, knowing that you were it was fentanyl I didn't or not know knowing. I didn't know until after and I found out because um, I I was a really t- I was a really terrible drug addict I could never find drugs and I got robbed a couple times and I just like had no idea what I was doing and like here take my money and then they just yeah. like you know and in all of those situations I put myself in oh my god I'm so lucky that I'm not dead how, how scary are drug traffickers? I mean, how scary is that? Maybe well, the first time they're scared. I think there's there's a di- there's there's different there's a different because class. we don't we don't so know. So you have people who are selling drugs to fund their habit, mm. and they're not very good drug dealers because y- if you're doing, doing drugs, drugs and you're selling the drugs you're doing, you're, prob- you're probably you're just making not, a profit to yeah. feed your own addiction. It, yeah, mm-hmm. and then there are some scarier ones who are. You know, they have ties to, to the gangs cartel. or mm-hmm. to, yeah, and or who knows, but they're scary and they're not nice. And um, it's just a business for they them. Want, yeah, they want your money. So whatever it's going to take for that is they have no regard, disregard or regard for life. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I want to just throw in there with that, that you know, because I've had to do a lot of learning on this or I guess learning. Um just pondering on the thoughts of drug dealers and that sense because of losing Zach, you know, and I told you about my brother too. And I, my, my brother for the, for the purpose of this. uh, Yeah. I lost, I lost Zach. We lost Zach. um, And thank you. Me too. In 2020, um, 29. Oh my God. So yes. September 19th, 2020. Uh, to an overdose, one Percocet laced with fentanyl, a drug dealer that um, don't know if it was to support his habit. Don't think he did pills, but I think he did like he partied or whatever. Needless to say, I've had to do some thinking about this. And what I what I wanted to say is I think it's also. It's a it's an evil way, but it's they have their own. I mean, they're addicted to that life. Yeah, those drug dealers are addicted to that lifestyle. So be it that. 
It's the greed. It's the greed. It's the ego. It's the ego, the money. And you get that. Yeah. And uh, And, and, and most of the time, where does it come from? And this is being, because I'm the most widely unjudgmental person. Most people that know me know that. But where does it come from? Okay, we have... Poverty stricken homes or families. So you have this is how I need to feed my family. This is how or it's a generational thing. Yeah. Um, my parents did this and I've seen it or I've seen it in my loved ones. And so I'm going to go sell dope because this is what my dad did or this is what my buddy said I should. There's all these things. And that's mm. so it's like it's the same. You know, it's not the same, but it's the same way that addiction comes from these varying aspects. It's like you have that and it's very much a deeper thing than just I'm going to sell some drugs and mm-hmm. be an asshole. Right. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's no, it's a whole um, it's a whole, it's a whole yeah. different. It's a whole different environment. Devil. Yeah. And I think maybe that ties into the stigma surrounding addiction. Right. Because when people think of an addict, they certainly probably don't think of someone like that looks like Alex or I who just look like two nice cute girls you know (laughs) but like but seriously you know like I'm from the suburbs Mm -hmm. I and it's in the suburbs it's it's everywhere I mean I was just thinking about how many people on my street were using opiates around the the time time I was Mm -hmm. and it's probably like one on every corner people Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and and it's it's just like it happens everywhere. I mean, I'm from Grandview and Grandview's right by the hilltop. It's not far from Franklinton. The Grandview is a nice area, but the hilltop is where a lot of the drug dealing goes on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's just right over the bridge and you're there, you know, and I think it's just everywhere. And that's what I think people um, they don't understand. And actually, you said something last week when I saw you, Cheryl, you said it was something along the lines of we are all so much alike. We're all so connected. If people would just open their mouths mm-hmm. and talk to each and other, share each yes. other's stories. Yeah. That you're no different from me, but different in ways. But I right. struggle with the same struggles you do with identity mm-hmm. and ego. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're human. Yeah. Right. And if we just could get past that at the younger age mm-hmm. and identify it rather than delving into a mind-altering substance. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. But near here nor there. Alex, how many days, months, years are you into your recovery? Uh, December 8th of 18. So if I make it to December 8th of this year, it'll be five years. Congratulations. Thank you. Mary Jane? It's pretty cool. Um, uh, my sobriety date is August 14th of 2018. Congratulations. So, just a little over five. Yeah. So tell me where you are now. What are you doing? Because I know you're doing some amazing things with a foundation and sh- with sharing your story, being so honest and open, enlight- enlightening everybody and helping the community. So mm-hmm. who wants to start? You Sure. So real quick, I do want to say that I was never convicted of any felonies because um, and this is such an important part of my story. I think um, I had a really supportive lawyer and my parents and the police. They all looked at me as a human and they um, I went through intervention in lieu and I did what I was required of me and I was able to get my record sealed and expunged. So I was never actually convicted of those felonies, which is amazing because felonies um, really can hold people back in, um, in getting their life back. You know, you can't vote with a felony. You can't, you, you get barred from a lot of like renting places mm-hmm. and um, jobs. So it's like having handcuffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
it is. Yeah. Um, and so I, since I've gotten sober, I was able to finish my bachelor's degree. I went to OU. Um, I went to journalism school, and I did some reporting for a while. I even worked on Capitol Hill, which was crazy because oh, congratulations! I, my my record was still kind of pending, um, and I was actually in the bathroom at Love work on Capitol Hill when my lawyer called me and was like, "Your record is expunged and it's sealed and it's over." And I just like remember crying because I was like, yeah. "I am literally somewhere where I thought that I would never end up because of I, what happened to me." I bet your mother was just as elated and she, wanted to she, hold you and she cry was. and all the above. yeah. And so and it just was crazy because I was like, you know, um, I never like it just kind of closed that chapter. Of course, it's, I don't ever close it. It's always kind of with me to rem- to keep me on the right track. But um, finished school and. Um, now I'm a marketing director for a um, construction company, and um, also I'm an executive director for the Cordella Foundation. We're a nonprofit um, that my boss Sean. It's it's his um, nonprofit. His sister Cordella. She overdosed back in 2022, and so um, the foundation is in her honor. And what we do is we um, fund funerals for families who lose their loved ones to addiction or overdose. Um, and we also do other things like we have a partnership with Amazon. So we get donations and we give them out to the community. We've been able to um, furnish sober houses and help different um, other community organizations. And we also work with community partners to kind of just um, talk about addiction and help any way we can the recovery community. Um, and so um, we're having a, you know, a dinner in February and it's okay if I and um, Cheryl is going to be our lovely guest speaker. We're excited. Just so excited. We're excited. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so I think this year we've been able to, and we just started in March. We've already paid for seven f- funerals, full and partial funerals. So that's a little over thirteen thousand dollars. And what's the average cost for a funeral? So it really depends. Like if you do a. If you do a direct cremation, it's usually around two thousand. But if you do services, um, it can be anywhere from like five thousand to seven thousand dollars. So it is pretty expensive, and a lot of times when you have a family member who is in addiction, who is an addict. Um, when you have a family member who's an addict, you know, a lot of money goes to um, treatment. A lot of money can go if they have children to raising their kids. Um, and so, you know, no one really prepares for for that, of course. How, how could you? And so um, families will contact us and they really just don't have the means to fund the funeral. And um, rightfully so. Um Everybody deserves to. And I, I know for a fact that when you go to the funeral home to plan that funeral, they will ask for your credit card right yeah. there and then. And yeah. you have to pay in full. You, you do. There are no yeah. payment plans. No. Well, no, there, there, there are some, there's a couple funeral homes that we work with that do actually work with families. But most don't. They they have to have the full payment in before you can mm-hmm. have your service, mm-hmm. and that's that can be hard. You know, I mean, we don't want to. We don't want them to have to. That that's the goal is that we don't is the financial help. Yes, but no no family, no one should have to be worried about how am I going to, how am I going to give a service for my child. my child, my family member, my loved one. No one should have to think about that. You know what I mean? Like they they shouldn't have to say, how am I going to pay for this? They're, 
at the same time that they're going through the most painful time in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all quick decision making. It is. One, they've passed away. Immediately, you have to think within 24 hours, you have to seek out funerals, a funeral home, a yep. funeral yep. services, right? Yes. Because yeah. the coroner, they want to know because they don't want your individual sitting at their location. Yeah. They want it transported out of there. So it's very, very difficult it's for the family. Yeah. I, I just, I was just telling you this. We have had three people just this week contact us for mm-hmm. overdose. Um, and the, the last thing I want to say, though, before I let Alex um, or I pass it to her is that I think sometimes, um, you know, when you think of a person who's done something bad, it doesn't mean they're a bad person, like an addict in this case, um, like, an addict can be somebody who's made bad choices, but they still can be smart and intelligent and a good person. And I, I think that really gets lost in translation. Um, it's not so black and white. And so um, it's just something I wanted to share, like, especially when you talk about paying for someone's funeral, um, just because someone it's a disease, you know, and and mm-hmm. they can still be a, a beautiful person and um it's it's just not so black and white and i think everyone like alex said deserves to have a that closure with their family and um i agree i agree yeah. it's 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 a wonderful thing what you two girls are doing and paying it forward and you know and giving your experience and helping others yeah i want to i'll i want to just add to that i think what Mary Jane was saying, I, um, some of the most beautiful people I've ever met in my entire life are in recovery or, mm-hmm. or were, you're, you're or never were addicts. You're right? never going to meet a more honest person than a person who has gone through recovery. Re- yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Cause I Agreed. think we base our healing mm-hmm. and our growth on that honesty mm-hmm. with not only honesty with ourselves, you, but you don't honesty have to with hide others. Any, you don't have to hide anything. You're there. Which right? is amazing. And if only mm-hmm. us people who haven't gone through addiction can be so open and honest. Uh, and that's, I, we joke and I think in recovery and we have probably specifically Mary Jane and I, and just in talking about our own lives and like relationships and things like that, is that like, if, if only they had recovery, right. Maybe not for substance abuse, but just for, for, for life, for life. pain, right. Like life. what, cause what you were saying, Cheryl, we, we all do face these he- very human experiences that are painful and joyous and annoying and all of these different different things we're human we're human <laughs> but the 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 only thing is that our solution to those feelings that what what we resorted to by default by whatever was extreme was extreme <laughs> right and yes. uh and by the time we were involved we there was not a way out that we that we knew how to get well you were in young way. young naive not educated about it all mm-hmm. and hopefully you know through these podcasts too you're educating a lot of people who still have no idea. You've been through the thick of it. There's people who have no idea of this little world that you've been in actually really exists. Mm-hmm. And it exists so strongly in so many communities. Rich communities, poor communities. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And it's, um, I wanted to say too about earlier something because you had asked and I don't think I answered it 
but what like stopping what stopping looked like because I know I mentioned because I had I had countless overdoses right and I by you know yeah you told me I'm, I'm 12, here 12 yeah hello 12, and hello. um so I when I stopped when people ask me like what what changed or why did you what was your your uh-huh. bottom your aha uh-huh yeah. moment um for me you had a lot I did have a lot and I think the whole time but mine I think is a little different I think the only difference like maybe because I was a, a bit younger I kind of grew my growing consisted of like that using and so my figuring out how to cope with life any of that that it was tied into all of those really vital years and so when so even when I knew things were terrible I just I just skipped a phase, right? Because the 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 normal story that we hear is like it, it is like the pills, and then you graduate to the like my brother, he didn't ever use, he didn't use a needle or he didn't do it. He was like partying, and then he did a pill with this person and whatever. Um, and like I said, it was one pill for him because he hadn't but, built up that tolerance, right? And for a me, a pill would have done it, right? And it did it because it was laced with fentanyl. Yeah, and the only thing, I mean, the only reason I went straight, I went. The only reason I guess it didn't. I just skipped that. I just skipped that chapter of that graduate graduate thing. I just went to because that happened to be the influence you that was right in front of me from I A just to Z. That. Yeah, <laughs> and, when, and that because that's what it was there. And it was like, okay, if you're going to do this, well, I'm not. I'm going to do it too. Then you know, I, it was that. It was that need to be to fit in, to fit in, to be enough, to be whatever mm-hmm. it was that I was supposed to be. Um, but yeah, where where I'm at as far as what we do today, I love. A the the foundation. Um, Sean's been a friend of mine for a while, for a while, some years now. And Mary Jane and I have gotten really close, and I'm like so grateful for our, our friendship. She's a one of a kind human. What's the website that listeners can go to if they feel like they would like to donate and help out? Is the dot org right? The mm-hmm. the Cordell, excuse me, the Cordella Foundation dot org. Can you spell it? Yes, it's the and then Cordella is C O R D E L L A foundation.org um and then they'll find contact information they can email and mary jane or myself will get it um we're really responsive but um i was i was super grateful to be asked to be a part of it um by them i know um in general i would be even if zach hadn't if that happened hadn't happened with my brother Mm -hmm. but uh yeah it's it there's not really a cause that i would rather be a part of because um, it's close to my heart. I lost, you know, I lost my brother. So I identified with, with Sean and Destry, Sean's brothers, mm-hmm. uh, their pain in that. Um, and they're close friends of mine. So of course I was willing to be a part of it. I work in treatment today. That's what I've done the last, since since very early in treatment. I don't know if it, we won't, you know. So you, I don't know if I, if that was logical to do that. But so you I've, work for a recovery center. I do. I, I do. I have worked... Um, for diff- various recovery centers, um, I came on as the director of outreach um, and admissions for Forward Health, which is in Groveport. Um, I love it. It's a wonderful place. I love that treatment exists for people, um, for people struggling and that I think what we have is it's just very, we care, you know, the staff there cares. And that's what I found about what I you know, being there, every center has ama- amazing things. But if, but it needs to be like you said, there can't be the stigma. It can't be just this structured cookie cutter. People need to really look at these people and see 
how can we help you individually? What what does this person need? What is their story? Um, and so even if they're a person's not coming to treatment with us, right? Outreach is business development. But if someone doesn't come to us, any number of our, our staff, like I will go to any length, 24 hours I sat making phone calls the other night to get someone to treatment at another. He couldn't even come to our facility, but I will... You know, I've I've pretty much devoted a large portion of my life to just make sure that I can help in some way, mm-hmm. um, in some way. And I love that. And actually, before I'll just say this because it makes me feel grateful. But before Zach passed, um, I was working at my first treatment center um, still. It was Parkside. They shut down mm-hmm. during Gehanna. Um, it was wonderful while it was. And uh, I got to bring Zach. Zach had had a few months he had reached out to me for help. So that's something really awesome that I got to do was like, as an adult, be there for my brother when Mm -hmm. I, I had all this guilt for leaving them, Mm -hmm. you know, younger. And, um, I, him and him and my sister are my whole entire world. They were like my kids before they were, you know, my brother and sister really. And they're twins. Um, and Zach got to come work at Parkside with me in a in a position and I got to train him it was like my those were some of my most fond memories that I had and then um yeah and I got to be there and have some time you know to get to know him like as an adult person Mm -hmm. and I never that I never it was it became a different relationship with your brother correct because he had become an adult yes right so you could share your it was Brother, wonderful. sisterhood on a different level. Yes, yeah. and, it, and I'm so grateful for that. And I think... Well, God but, gave you that gift. Yeah, absolutely. And like like I said, one of the best people I've ever met. So to your point, like, yeah, yeah. it's it doesn't... It's addiction does not discriminate. No, it, doesn't it doesn't matter. Doesn't Lawyers, mean. judges, attorneys, mm-hmm. doctors. It doesn't... Police officers, people in yeah. low income, high income. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. You can't put this idea on people that we are people that's it we're people and we face different circumstances and whatever leads to it it happens and then it it is what it is everyone is someone's child you know so for there to be this stigma around it is like yeah and i say it's it's no different than diabetes or cardiovascular disease you know if Mm -hmm. if you're going to eat bad food and you're going to be Come obese and you're going to have cardiovascular or diabetes issues. That was your choice to do that, right? right? But it just all happens so fast and it gets out of control and then you don't have control anymore. Right. And I think, you know, now I always say it's not my fault that I am an addict, but now that I know I am, it's my responsibility to do what I need to do mm-hmm. to, um, you know, treat the treat the disease because it is a disease and mm-hmm. uh, and just because you're an addict it doesn't make you a weak person and I think unfortunately a lot of times you know like we've said that stigma is there and p- as humans we judge things we we judge people we judge circumstances when we don't understand them and a lot of times what happens is is like Alex said it doesn't discriminate so then somebody's child you know we don't talk about things and then mm-hmm. the child becomes an addict and they they you think oh well not my kid she's too pretty she's too smart mm-hmm. and it's like well i'm not going to say that i need help as the addict because right. everyone around like i just yep. remember thinking oh my god like people are going to think yep. that i'm a junkie criminal my reputation's going to be ruined like even coming here and 
talking on your podcast, I was thinking, I was kind of like, kind of nervous. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh, like, what People if are this gonna follows know because me? I'm, yeah, yeah, like, you yeah. know, as someone who want, like, want, is very career oriented, but it's like, I am a person and I mm. am an addict, but that's like not everything about me. It is a big mm. part of my life, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't right. mean that I'm any less deserving or worthy. Well, I think with, too, with it, Mary Jane, celebrities are coming out. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about their addiction, like Matthew Perry, who just passed away, or Robert Downey Jr., which has been in recovery for years. Right. Rob Lowe, you know, people look up to these celebrities and with these celebrities admitting to their addictions of choice mm-hmm. um, makes it more understanding. And so I put you girls right in that category that you're opening up, right? Mm-hmm. And you've overcome the biggest gorilla or bricks that can be on your shoulders because I know it's the hardest hardest weight to take off your shoulder yeah yeah thank you thank Thank you. you yeah you're beautiful you're both beautiful you're both very strong and I wish you the best and I look forward to having a long relationship with you too you're the sweetest. Yeah, you're amazing, Cheryl. You are. I want. Can I say one thing before we? Because I think it's to your point about when we about the introduction. So just this is just for parents out there, and I know you feel really strongly about this, Cheryl. Um, and it kind of got to my heart when I first met you. Um, you know, there is no, there is no way that any parent can. Um. No love, no amount of love is what is what it takes to help someone get clean or help someone get the help they need or get so but it doesn't and it doesn't have to do with whether or not your loved one loves you. It it doesn't. Um it doesn't have to do with whether you've done enough, you did the right thing, you gave the right support, you did you know, the sleepless nights, the countless times you've tried different things, that it doesn't it's not your fault. And that's what I want to say is it's not your fault. You know, I moms, dads, you hear it. It's it's not your fault. It was out of control. It's out of your control. It is. And it's and, and now it doesn't make you a bad parent that no. you didn't know what was going on before it was too late. Yeah, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. I just and I, I just kind of spoke to my heart when you and when we had all talked prior and I just wanted to I know you had mentioned that that was a, a topic that was important and that is important. You know, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much thank for having you. us. Yeah. Just Happy 2024. Yeah. Yes. Right? I know. We're almost there. New year, new me. New year, new me. <laughs> yeah. <Thanks. something. laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and a big shout out to Alex and Mary Jane for being raw and vulnerable and telling their story and how they are making a difference. And thank you to my producer, Dan, who makes us sound good. We have so many exciting guests coming up our way in 2024. And my plans are to get all the good parts on video reels and follow us on TikTok. If you are enjoying this podcast, please make sure you follow and subscribe. And it helps so much to leave a review so that other individuals can find us. I so appreciate all of your encouraging words that have been coming in. And if you don't know my son who passed away... He passed away from a fentanyl overdose back in 2014. So this podcast was very, very important to me to stop the stigma, to educate the public, 
and to let mom and dads know that it's not your fault. You did all you could do. And thank you for listening to Where'd They Go?